Do you know that prayerlessness is probably the great sin of most of us? Because prayerlessness reveals that we are trusting in our own strength, and that will routinely fail you. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open to Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9. We'll continue uh, in the gospel. This is the shortest of the gospels and the most action-packed. Last week we talked about that Peter had just made his great confession that Jesus is the Christ, the promised Messiah. The disciples have finally figured out after two and a half years who Jesus is, but they have not yet figured out what he came to do. They believe that Messiah is going to be a conquering king. He's going to conquer Rome. He's going to free Israel from bondage. He's going to reign over the whole earth. And they're going to reign with him. And Jesus has just told them, I'm going to die. And they can't believe it. Peter actually takes Jesus and says, Jesus, you got it all wrong. Hold it. You're not going to die. You got to get off that kick. Of course, Jesus rebukes Peter and says, whoa, 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 whoa. When you argue with God's plan, you agree with Satan's plan. So when you argue with God about what he's going to have you do this week, you're agreeing with Satan. Because see, Satan wants Jesus to bypass the cross and go straight for the glory. I mean, take the crown, don't bypass the cross. All these people in man of class, they don't need salvation. Let them go to hell. That's Satan's agenda. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. I'm going to the cross. It's been God's plan from eternity past to go to the cross to die for the sins of the world. That is central. Jesus is six months away from the cross. He's been on earth now for 30 years. Three years, almost 33 years. He's been with the disciples for two and a half years. He's 180 days away from the cross. So he knows that when he leaves, the disciples are going to struggle. Their faith is really going to be tested when he ascends back into heaven. So he makes them a promise. Go to Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And I used to read that verse and I'm going, man, these guys have to live over 2,000 years because the kingdom of God has not yet come with power and they're dead. We're going to find out what he meant. So the disciples now have been with Jesus two and a half years and they've never had to walk by faith because Jesus has always been present. They've been with him 24 by 7 for two and a half years. And everything they did, he did, they saw with their own eyes. Now Jesus knows in six months he's going to die and go to heaven. And their faith is going to really struggle because he's not going to be present with them. And he knows they're going to undergo persecution as they carry the gospel forward. So we need to give them hope. He needs to give them something to hang on to. So he's going to do for them what he has not yet done for us. He's going to make their faith sight. He's he's going to actually show them the glory of heaven with our own eyes. Chapter 9, verse 2. Six days later, Peter took with him Peter and James and John and brought them up on a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. Matthew 17 And Luke 9 also covered this transfiguration. So it's covered by all three gospel writers. Matthew says, His face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. And Luke 9, 23 tells us why they went to the mountain in the first place. They went up the mountains to pray. And while Jesus was praying, his appearance became different, and his clothing became white and gleaming. Now, Scripture doesn't specify exactly what mountain it is. likely took place on the southern ridge of Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon, Rob's going to show you a pic, is in the extreme northeast of Israel. It's right on the border with Lebanon. As a matter of fact, the summit of Mount Hermon is in Lebanon. It's about 9,200 
feet tall, 92-32. And uh, there is a ski resort down Mount Hermon Ski Resort. You can toboggan, you can mountain bike. Everything you can do at Mammoth, you can do at Mount Hermon. It, I mean, at, uh, yeah, Mount Hermon. It's really a hoot. I looked at all the pics on, online. It's really interesting. This mountain's about 12 miles northeast of Caesarea Philippi. So they've been at Caesarea Philippi. We talked about that city last week. This is about 12 miles northeast of Caesarea Philippi is where this mountain is. And it receives snowfall and rain uh, for a good chunk of the year. Rob's going to show you several pictures of the mountain itself. The Middle East historically is very, very dry. Not a lot of rainfall. So this little mountain range, with this is the highest mountain in this range, if you get rain and snow, this is a strategic resource because rainwater in that era is very, very difficult. This mountain's made out of limestone. And limestone contains a lot of fissures, right? And those fissures is what collects all the melting snow water and it transmits it below. Actually, it comes up at the base of the mountain in many springs. There's a lot of springs at the base of Mount Hermon. And many of those form the headwaters of the Jordan. There's about three or four or five major springs that come off the mountain. That melting snow water forms the headwaters of the Jordan River. So it's probably September, October. It's autumn time, and they go to the mountain to pray. Six months before Jesus is dying, going to die on the cross for the sins of the world. And Jesus now is spending more time with the twelve. He's spending less time with the crowds. Less time with the crowds. He's spending the last year of his ministry really working on the faith and the de development of the faith of the 12 disciples. So he goes to the mountain and he takes his three inner circle with him, Peter, James, and John. These are the inner circle. Peter is the leader of the 12, and James and John are Jesus' first cousins. So these three are the core group that he spends time with, and they go up to the mountain and have a prayer meeting. And Jesus is praying. His appearance is altered, not his identity, his, his appearance. He's always been the Son of God. He always will be the Son of God. But up until this time, you've never seen His heavenly glory. Up until now, Jesus didn't look any different than you and I. If Jesus walked into the room as He was before the cross, you would not recognize Him as any different than you. Isaiah 53 says there was nothing unusual about Him. He looked just like any other ordinary human being. His glory was veiled. It was covered by His humanity. The only way you knew that Jesus was God was not based on how he looked, but what he did. I mean, he did hundreds and hundreds of miracles. People were raised from the dead. Demons were cast out. So you looked at his behavior and you said, this is supernatural. But if you looked at his appearance, he looked just like you and me, ordinary. Now, the veil of his humanity is pulled back like curtains on a stage are just pulled back and his glory just shines out. And the word that's used here is the word transfigure. Transfiguration is a change on the outside that comes from the inside. Change on the outside that comes from the inside. The opposite of transformation is masquerade. A masquerade is a change on the outside that doesn't come from the inside, right? We look at a masquerade and go, oh, that's a mask. You, you're, you're faking it. The change is not on the inside. You're wearing a mask. A transfiguration is something that comes from the inside out. Another word for transfiguration is metamorphosis. Meta means change, and morphe is body. So metamorphosis is a change in form or a change in body. And probably the most, I guess, common example of that would be a, a caterpillar that spins a cocoon. And what happens a few weeks after the cocoon is spun? Out comes a beautiful caterpillar, right? You can talk to me. What comes out after a butter, you know, a butterfly, right? Okay, just making sure you're still there. So that's an example of a metamorphosis. It's a complete change in form. It's a complete change uh, in body. And that's what happens to Jesus. His identity is divine. It's always been divine. But his glory has been veiled. And now in this prayer meeting, his bodily appearance just glows like light and it reflects his glory. So the disciples are, are going to see, in six months, they're going to see Jesus die. And they're going to see him go into the grave. And he says, I'm going to be resurrected. And they have no clue what that means. Resurrected. I mean, that's meaningless. So he's showing them right now 
here's what my real core glory is like. And when I go back to heaven, I'm going to give you a picture of what it's going to be like. So you will know when you die what you have to look forward to. And that message is the same for us today. Jesus' garments became radiant, and Matthew says they were literally as white as light. And the Greek word here is stilbo, and it means to glitter. How many of you have ever, how many of you have a diamond? It may be a small one, but how many of you have a diamond, right? Okay, right. When you, we like diamonds because they have many facets and they glitter. When you shine light on a diamond, it reflects light. I know I'm dating myself, but how many of you remember a disco dance mirror ball? You know, the, you remember those? You don't have those in your bedroom? Really? Really? What's wrong with you people? They're really good. You remember the balls and they go around and, and the lights glitter and the rainbow flashes and you see all the lights on the dance floor, etc.? That's the picture. This light that was coming out of Jesus wasn't just a flat static like this. It was glittering. It was dancing. It was flashing light like, like uh, facets of a diamond or a, a disco dance mirror ball that moves, right? It's not static. It's very sparkling. And Luke says the term white and gleaming to describe Jesus' clothing. It's like blazing white sunlight. Uh, Mark, Mark must have had a real bad experience with a, with a cleaner because he says that his clothes were whiter than any earth, earthly launderer could make them. So I don't know what cleaning, you know, where, where he went. You know, he might have had a bad experience with bleach or something. So anyway, but this was better than any launderer could make them. You know, the color white reflects light, correct? Of all the colors in the rainbow, the color light reflects light. Ice is really good at reflecting light. You look at the polar north caps, etc. But Jesus was not a light reflector. Jesus is a light generator. In other words, the light comes out of him. It doesn't reflect. He is the source of light. It's literally the glory light of heaven radiated out from him. And Matthew, all these writers are struggling to describe what heaven's glory is like. It's so not like earth. Matthew says his face shone like the sun, you know, to, for comparison. It, whenever God shows up in the Bible, in Scripture, in the Old or New Testament, he always appears as light, radiant, effulgent, brilliant light. Moses dedicated the tabernacle. King Solomon dedicated the temple. It says the glory of God filled the building with such blinding light that no one could even enter it. In, in the Exodus, when God led Israel out of Egypt and he led them through the wilderness for 40 days, 40 years, right? He led them with a pillar of cloud by day, the Shekinah glory, and a pillar of fire by night. So every time God comes, it's in the form of light. In Revelation, the Apostle John describes Jesus' appearance in Revelation 1.16, and he said, His face was like the sun shining in its strength, like a brilliant July day in Bakersfield, right, where there's no clouds and the brilliant sun. Have you ever been, how many of you have ever been to Hawaii or the Caribbean? Near the equator? Does the sun feel hotter there? Of course, we have no air pollution to filter it out. I mean, that's so he's really talking about this brilliant, bright, white light. And that's how God comes. Revelation tells us when Jesus comes the second time, he's going to appear in blazing glory, literally as this brilliant, blinding light. Mark 9, verse 4, the next verse, it says, Jesus is not alone on the mountain. Elijah appeared to them, to the disciples, along with Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. Luke 9 tells us, who appearing in glory were speaking with Jesus of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Here's the first principle. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was planned from eternity past by God himself. It is the central event of human history. The death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was planned from eternity past by God himself. It is the central event of human history. So Jesus and his disciples are not alone on the mountain. 
the prophet Elijah, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, and the great lawgiver Moses appear with Jesus in glory. Moses, of course, represents the law, and Elijah, the prophets. Both the prophets and the law, of course, find their fulfillment in Christ. Kind of interesting, Moses has been dead for 1,400 years. Elijah's been dead for 900 years. Both Moses and Elijah had previously seen God on mountaintops when they were alive. Actually, both of them had actually had conversations with God on mountaintops. Moses, remember, got the law from where? Mount Sinai. Multiple times went up the mountain and talked to God face-to-face to get the law. And Elijah had talked with God on Mount Horeb when he ran from Jezebel who was trying to kill him. Both Moses and Elijah had rather interesting departures from planet Earth. Moses died on the top of the mountain, and he was buried by God himself. And Elijah never died. Elijah was literally raptured out of planet Earth into heaven with a, as a, in a chariot of fire. That's what it looked like. And you and I, if we're still alive when Jesus comes, are going to have that same experience Elijah did. We will be caught up. Thessalonians says, in the twinkling of an eye, it raptured directly from earth into heaven. So Moses and Elijah are on the mountain, but they don't have their ordinary bodies. They have their glorified resurrection heavenly bodies, just like Jesus. And Scripture tells us that we too will have new bodies. We'll have resurrection bodies. We'll have bodies that are glorified, and they will look like Moses and Elijah and like Jesus' body. And for most of us, we're at an age where that's really a good thing. I mean, we know that's a really good thing. You can tell a teenager this passage and they'll go, oh, yeah, yeah, big deal. We know that we need new bodies. And we know that heaven's going to be a place where we're going to get them and there'll be no medical attention needed, no insurance, no Band-Aids. It's really going to be the deal, right? So God designed our bodies, our earthly bodies that we have today for life on earth. Our earthly bodies would not survive in heaven, so God is going to design a brand new body, a custom-designed body designed specifically to live in heaven. And that's the bodies that Jesus has and Moses has and Elijah has. They're heavenly bodies that are designed to live in heaven. And Scripture says that Moses and Elijah are not just watching Jesus, they're actually having a conversation with Jesus, and they're talking about his departure which he's going to accomplish in Jerusalem in about six months. The word departure here means exodus. That's the literal Greek, exodus. And the word exodus means way out. The book of Exodus literally translates the way out. So they're discussing with Jesus his upcoming death in Jerusalem that will pay for the penalty for the sins of the entire world. And you kind of wonder, why did God the Father send Moses and Elijah from heaven to earth to talk to Jesus at this point. It's interesting. Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully human. This is a speculation. I can't prove it, but maybe God the Father sent Moses and Elijah to earth to encourage Jesus, to strengthen Jesus as he moved toward his death on the cross. We know that after Jesus was tempted in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights by Satan, It says that angels came to minister to him, to strengthen him, to encourage him. And we know that the Garden of Gethsemane reveals that Jesus really dreaded the cross, really dreaded the cross, his flesh, but he said, thy will be done. I can only imagine he was looking ahead to the cross with a great deal of of, uh, pain, knowing what that was going to mean. And it's a speculation on my part, but... Uh, Moses and Elijah might have come to encourage Jesus in that realm. In addition to that, they came to witness to Peter, James, and John. The disciples need to understand that the cross is not an accident. That Jesus is going to suffer and die, not by accident, but by design. Because the cross is an achievement, it's not an accident. It is a triumph, it's not a tragedy. It was planned from eternity past by God Almighty. Every detail of this event is by God's custom design. So Moses and Elijah are the most trustworthy witnesses the apostles, these three, could ever have that the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is the central of any human history. 
So you think, wow, this is a real glorious moment, right? The light has come down from heaven. Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah, and this is a magnificent event. And then Peter interrupts the conversation. Mark 9, verse 5. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Now that's what you call a duh, just in case you're wondering, right? This is a statement of the obvious, right? Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. That's also a duh, right? Luke 9 says, Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw the glory of Jesus and the two men standing with him. Verse 33 says, As they were leaving Jesus, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah, not realizing what he was saying. So they're having this prayer meeting, and apparently the disciples fall asleep during the prayer meeting, right? Jesus is praying, they're praying, they fall asleep. Of course, they're going to do this later on in the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, just lest we chastise these disciples too much for falling asleep, you and I fall asleep routinely when we pray. Our attention span is, we all have spiritual ADD when it comes to prayer. We pray and our brain goes this way and that way, etc. I'm not, not carrying a torch for the disciples, but I want to give you some thoughts. Number one, they're at a high altitude. If you ever been to the high altitude, do you understand altitude sickness? Number two, they've had a long walk. Number three, a long prayer meeting is hard work. And number four, it says in Gethsemane, they fell asleep due to sorrow. Jesus has told them, I'm going to die. Most of us probably would have fallen asleep just like they did. So they wake up from their sleep and they see Jesus in radiant glory along with Moses and Elijah also having glorified bodies. Interestingly, Scripture says they know that it's Moses and Elijah. I don't know how they know, but they know that it's Moses and Elijah. Interesting, it also clearly indicates that they understand the conversation that Jesus and Moses and Elijah are having. They might have been speaking in Aramaic. They probably had to be speaking in Aramaic because that was the lingua franca, or that was the language that Peter, James, and John understood. They probably weren't speaking the king's English, just saying. So Peter like us, especially like Brad, has to talk, right? Even when he has nothing to say, just like us sometimes, he states the obvious, Lord, it's good for us to be here. And then he makes a suggestion. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, I don't know what Moses and Elijah were thinking about this guy interrupting the conversation. Scripture doesn't say, but it's kind of interesting. We don't like to be interrupted. They have glorified bodies, so it's, yeah, there's a lot that we don't know. And the text says that the disciples were terrified, which we would be as well. Anytime in Scripture you see humanity encounter glory, if terror and fear and, and weakness is a result. Many, many times you see people literally fall on their face. Here's a hint. When you don't know what to say, say nothing. Just the thought. There is an old proverb that says, better to keep your mouth closed and seem a fool than to open it and remove all doubt. <laughs> I'm preaching to me here, right? This is for Brad. Because I can identify with Peter, and I'm sure you can as well. So you say, Peter's making these suggestions. Let's build three booths. What's that all about? Well, at this time of year, actually the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles is taking place throughout the land. This is the month Tishri, which is our September-October, so it's autumn at the fall time. And the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles was a celebration that Israel had eight days, and it, it celebrated their deliverance from Egypt and their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. And during this feast, people would make small booths or small shelters 
or tabernacles, you will out of branches and palm leaves. So they would make these little itty bitty little booths and they would live in them for a couple days. And it was a memorial to the time that they spent 40 years in tents in, in uh, the wilderness after they left Egypt. So Peter wants to make three booths because it's this time of year. It's the feast of booths. And it's uh, in the fall and he wants to make one for Jesus, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, Peter thinks that God's kingdom has come to earth now, right? I mean, glory has come down. He's seen Jesus in his glorified body. And Peter wants to camp out on the mountain with Peter, with, uh, with Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. I don't blame him. If you're in the presence of glory like that, why would you want to leave? He says, Lord, let's build three booths, and maybe you can just hang out here for a while. Uh, right? You look and go, well, from a human standpoint, that makes perfectly good sense. Why do, why, why don't you, we don't want to suffer. You don't want to suffer. Why don't we just stay on the mountain? I mean, mountains are a good place to hang out as long as Jesus, Moses, and Elijah are with you, right? And this is us today. We love being on the mountaintops. How many of you like mountaintop experiences? How many of you just love to come back to the valley where all a mess is? Yeah, we go to the mountains, but we live in the valleys, right? Where all the sweat and the sorrow is. There are needs in the valleys. And Jesus calls us to serve just like he served. So Peter's interrupted and Peter's talking away. And then Peter gets interrupted by God the Father. Verse 7. Then a cloud formed overshadowing them and a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my beloved Son... Listen to him. Matthew tells us that God the Father said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Luke 9 tells us, While Peter was saying this, a cloud formed and began to overshadow them, and they were afraid as they entered into the cloud. Matthew says, When they heard this, they fell face down to the ground and were terrified. Mm -hmm. That would be a good thing to do. Here's the principle. Observe and obey God's word. Reject and discard any opinion contrary to God's word. And you look and you say, well, Brad, that's pretty obvious. This is so countercultural. Our culture entertains all sorts of foolish ideas contrary to God's word. And yet God the Father says, listen to my son. So obey and observe God's word. Reject and discard any opinion contrary to God's word. Now, this glory cloud, this cloud that we're talking about, is the Shekinah glory cloud that the visible presence of God in the Old Testament. Every time God shows up in the Old Testament, he shows up as a fulgent, radiant light in the glory cloud called the Shekinah glory. So God the Father speaks from this cloud in order to correct Peter. And Peter, it seems as though he is putting Jesus on the same level as Moses and Elijah. Because he says, we're going to build three tabernacles, one for each of you. One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for you too, Jesus. So he puts them all three on the same tabernacle. And God the Father interrupts this, and he says, just like he said at Jesus' baptism two and a half years before, the exact same words. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my Son, God the Father is clearly elevating Jesus above Moses and Elijah, above any human being. Jesus is God. Jesus the Son has the same essence as the Father. That's what God the Father is saying. This is my Son. And Jesus is pleasing to his Father. And then God commands Peter, listen to him. Escuche. How many of you have told your children this before? You know, this literally translates, be obedient to him. How many of you, when you were a kid, had your parent, usually mom, ask you, did you hear me? Have you ever had your mother say that to you? She wasn't asking about your hearing ability. She was making sure of your obedience ability. Did you hear me says, you're going to obey me, right? Do what I say. Peter's talking and he should be listening. And we're guilty of the same thing. It's easy to spend more time talking to Jesus, talking at Jesus, as opposed to listening to Jesus. 
So God the Father rebukes Peter, and verse 8, <clears throat> all at once they looked around and saw no one with them anymore except Jesus alone. Matthew 17 tells us that Jesus came to them and touched them and said, Get up and do not be afraid. You know, we serve a Savior that is so tender. Um, he restores Peter. He restores his children. He touches us in our brokenness and in our foolishness and in our fear. And these disciples, these three, have seen a glimpse of heaven's glories. And Jesus says, don't say anything yet. When I rise from the dead, you can tell the other nine disciples of what you saw. This right now is specifically designed to strengthen your faith. When I leave, you're going to encounter persecution carrying the gospel to the nations and suffering. And you will know where I am because you saw my glory and you will know where you're going when you die. Verse 9. And they were coming down from the mountain. He gave them strict orders not to relate to anyone what they'd seen until the Son of Man rose from the dead. Jump ahead to verse 14. They are now coming back into the valley, and it is a mess. Verse 14. When they came back to the disciples, that's the other nine, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately when the entire crowd saw him, him, Jesus, they were amazed and began running up to greet Jesus. And Jesus asked them, what are you discussing with them? And one of the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought you my son, demon-possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground, and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out, but they could not do it. So Peter, James, and John come down from this mountaintop experience, having seen God, the Son, in his glorified state, and they come into a world that is broken. And the contrast between the mountaintop and the valley is sharp. The glory of heaven is on the mountain, and here in the valley we see the torment from hell. On the mountaintop, God is dominant, and down here a demon is dominant. Up on the mountain, the heavenly father is pleased, and down here in the valley we're going to see an earthly father is in agony. And on the mountain is God's perfect son, and right down here is a tortured son. And the contrast is so contemporary. You know, meeting God on the mountaintop, many of you have gone to camp at some point in time, and on top of the mountain, it seems that God is so close, and problems are so far away, and you can see forever, and you get perspective on the mountains. It's wonderful, but you can't stay there. have to come down to the valley. And the valleys are full of problems and pain. I'm going to have Rob show you uh, Raphael's painting, The Transfiguration of Christ. I don't know if you can see it or not. I, can you turn down the lights, Marty? I'm going, to, I'm, going to, I'm going to talk through this briefly. I want you to understand this picture is divided in half. The upper half of the picture is on the mountain. The lower half of the picture is what's going on in the valley. Jesus is central and elevated in the middle. Moses is on the right with the law in his hand, and Elijah is on the left, the two prophets. All three of them are in the air, Jesus, Moses, and Elijah, indicating their glorified bodies. And that brilliant cloud behind them, that's the Shekinah glory cloud of God, the Father. That's where the Father is always seen on planet Earth. Peter, James, and John are lying down on top of the mountain. They're just waking up from sleep, and they see this glorified uh, reality of Moses, Jesus, and Elijah in glorified states. And the bottom half of the painting is everything that's going on in the valley. And on the lower left-hand side of the painting, you're going to count nine disciples. Those are 12 total. Three of them are on the mountain. The nine are the ones that are left. You can count the heads. I did. There are nine disciples on the lower left-hand side. On the lower right-hand side, you're going to see this young man who's being held by his father. His father's in green. His father's got the green tunic, and he's holding his son up. His mother, the young man's mother, is almost in the middle, and there's a small crowd surrounding the boy. So Raphael is giving you in picture form his conception of what happened on the mountain. Marty, you can turn the lights back up. So Jesus and his disciples descend into the valley and they find the nine disciples are left and they're having problems. 
A demon-possessed boy has been brought to them. They have tried to cast out the demon, and they failed. Secondly, they're getting into an argument with the scribes, the Jewish legal authorities, and they're arguing in front of a crowd of onlookers, and apparently they're losing the argument. So Jesus, when he comes down from the mountain, the crowd sees him, and they rush him like a bunch of teenagers, groupies, rush a rock star. And Jesus ignores the crowd, says to the disciples, what were you discussing with them, meaning the scribes? And the word discussing here translates arguing. What were you arguing about? Scripture doesn't tell us. But you can imagine that there was a fair amount of argument and ridicule going on because they were unable to cast out the demon. The father of the boy speaks up and he says, Matthew and Luke tell us that he falls on his knees before Jesus and addresses Jesus as Lord and teacher. Obviously, this boy's father possesses some kind of faith that Jesus can help. He's heard about Jesus' many exorcisms, and he's brought his son to Jesus for help. And this tale will break your heart. His only son is possessed by a demon who has been tormenting this young man for years. This boy is deaf, he's mute, and he now seems to exhibit symptoms of epilepsy. He's got seizures, he foams, he grinds his teeth, he stiffens out. In other words, the father says, the demon slams my son into the ground. Over, 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 over. I wonder how many concussions this young man has suffered. I wonder how much traumatic brain injury this young man has. We know that he periodically has grand mal seizures. Dad's describing that. And if you wondered whether demons are destructive, they're destructive. They're deadly. Most of the time, demons operate undercover. Demons are alive and well on planet Earth. Many of them wear blue business suits. Many of them preach in church on Sundays, right? They operate undercover. But when Jesus came to Earth, man, they show up in mass. And everywhere we see demons, we see Jesus in complete control over them. Verse 19. And Jesus answered and said, O oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, when the demon saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling to the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. The demon has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Here's the principle. Faith believes that Jesus is willing and able to do all things and trusts him to do what is best at all times. Faith believes that Jesus is willing and able to do all things and trusts him to do what is best at all times. Some of you are going to need to write that in lipstick on your mirror because you're going to encounter events in the next weeks and months of your life that you are going to have to say, by faith, I believe that what Jesus is doing in my life is what is best at this time, even if I don't understand it. Maybe especially because I do not understand it. So Jesus, when he says, oh, unbelieving generation, I thought he used to be talking at the crowds. He's not talking to the crowds. He's talking to the disciples. He's exasperated with his twelve. It literally, this O oh, unbelieving generation, literally translates, O oh, you of little faith. Has Jesus ever used that phrase with his disciples before? Dozens of times. Every time they run into an event and their faith failed, he says, O oh, you of little faith. The disciples have trust, trouble trusting Jesus two and a half years into their relationship, and we is them. We have trouble trusting Jesus, and some of us have been walking with the Lord for 30 and 40 years. Jesus said already, remember, he sent them on their first missions trip a couple weeks ago. He gave them authority to cast out demons, and they'd been doing it. It says they were successful at casting out the demons. 
So why can't they do it now? They failed to cast out the demon because they failed to exercise faith in Jesus. They were trusting in their own power and their past successes to get the job done, and human strength is no match for demonic power. So Jesus commands them to bring the boy to him, and when they do, the demon throws this boy into a terrible convulsion. You're going to find out that Jesus is not only totally powerful, he's very tender. And he asks the father, how long has this been going on? And as we've said in this class for years, when Jesus asks questions, he is not seeking information. He already knows the answer. He's asking for information from the father because he cares about the pain this father's been experiencing. He deeply cares about the suffering of people because he loves Jesus cares enough to get involved in this father's pain and problems, and he cares enough to get involved in our pain and our problems. Because we serve a gentle shepherd. Amen? Many of us are broken. All of us are broken. And we all need the touch of the shepherd who cares for the sheep. And the demon, the father says, this demon's been trying to kill my son since I was a child. The demon repeatedly tries to burn him to death by throwing him into open fires. And in that era, open fires were how you cooked. There were open fires everywhere. The demon would take control of this boy and try and throw him in open fire, and did on multiple occasions. Father would have to rescue him. The demon would try to drown him by throwing him into wells and cisterns. Luke describes these demonic attacks on this boy, he uses a word which means to crush, to shatter, or to maul. The demon is mauling this man's son, trying to kill him from childhood. And this father must have been exhausted, trying to save the life of his son over and over and over. And you can hear the heartbreak in this guy. It's just heartbreaking. And this desperate father says to Jesus, but if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. See, the father's got a problem with belief here. The father believes that Jesus wants to help, but he's not sure he can. He says, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And the word pity here means to, to show mercy. It means to feel deeply enough, to care deeply enough to show mercy. And the word help means literally to run to the aid of someone who cries for help. It's like you get a 911 call and you get out of bed and you go to run to the aid of someone who needs assistance. So Jesus, do you care deeply enough to run to our aid? Do you care enough to get involved in our pain and in our brokenness that we've been struggling with for years? And Jesus tells the father, the real problem is not my ability to help your son. I've got it. The real problem is your willingness to trust in God who can do the impossible. Jesus says, if you can, because the Father says, if you can do anything, show pity us. And Jesus says, if you can, how can you doubt my ability? And you're going, how could Jesus talk that way? This Father lives in this area. You know how many demons have been cast out of people in this area? How many miracles have occurred over the last year and a half? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. This father has seen this. He says, I've been doing miracles in front of your eyes for 18 months. You know I can. And then Jesus makes this great statement. All things are possible to him who believes. Faith sets no limits on the power of God. And at the same time, faith always submits itself to God's will. The issue is never the power of God. The issue is never the love of God. The issue is always our faith in His power. And then the Father is so honest. I mean, I relate to this guy. He says, I do believe. Help my unbelief. Because we have that inside us, don't we? We struggle. Believe unbelief. Trust, don't trust. Trust in God. Trust in myself. Give it to God, take it back at 2 in the morning because I can worry about it till daybreak, right? That's really helpful, and yet that happens. He says, God, Jesus, my faith is weak. Help me keep believing. And the message for us today is real simple. Bring whatever faith you have to Jesus. Whatever faith you have, bring it to Jesus because it's not the size of your faith that matters. It's the object of your faith. 
In Matthew 17, Jesus tells the disciples, if you have faith the size of a mustard seed, which is a tiny, 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 it takes hundreds of them to make a gram, hundreds. You have faith as a mustard seed, you can move mountains. And you go, whoa. So my ability to move mountains, which is a metaphor for doing the impossible, I don't need a great deal of faith. That's right, because faith doesn't move mountains. God's power moves mountains. Our faith is what accesses God's power. It's not our faith that does anything except trust in the almighty power of God to do what he chooses to do based on his sovereignty. Verse 25. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. After crying out and throwing the boy into terrible convulsions, it came out and the boy became so much like a corpse that most of the crowd said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him up and he got up. Verse 28. When Jesus came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Here's the principle. Prayer is the road that faith travels into the presence of God, who is the source of all power. Prayer is the road, the highway, the freeway that faith travels on into the presence of God, who is the source of all power. The disciples tried to cast out this demon and failed because they had relied on their own power. They had relied on their human energy instead of prayerfully depending on God's unlimited power. Remember, Jesus had already given them authority to cast out demons. And on their first mission trip, they'd been successful. But apparently this time, they had not prayed before they tried to exercise power to cast out a demon. Do you know that prayerlessness is probably the great sin of most of us? Because prayerlessness reveals that we are trusting in our own strength. And that will routinely fail you. Routinely. Because our power in the spiritual realm is zero. We have no inherent power over demons. We have no inherent power to accomplish anything spiritually except by the power of Almighty God. We are 100% dependent on God's power. And the only way you access God's power is through faith and prayer. Because faith believes that Jesus is both able and willing to help. He's willing to help because he's a loving God. He's a good shepherd and he's powerful enough to help because he's sovereign over all things. So when we pray, we ask for his help. We say, God, please do X, Y, Z, right? We ask for his help. He's willing and he's able and we submit to his sovereign will. Because God's plan is always better than ours. Jesus is going to the cross. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's looking at the cross. He's looking at death in a matter of hours. It says he sweats great drops of blood. And he says, Lord, God, Father, I pray that if it be your will, take this cup away from me. I don't want to die. I don't want to go through the pain of separation from you. I don't want to bear all the sins of the world, which is far beyond the physical pain. Nevertheless... Not my will, but your will be done. That's a very good thing to end all our prayers with. Surrendering to the will of God. Because Jesus is able and willing to do everything and anything and all things, but his sovereignty determines what he will do and when he will do it because he knows what's best for us and for his sovereign plan. Since God always knows best, we should always end our prayers with thy will be done. And of course, this ends with a young man being free from demonic possession, never to be possessed again because Jesus commanded them never to come back. The disciples have seen Jesus operate in the valley of sorrow and suffering, and they've seen the mountaintop as well. It's a good metaphor and a good historical narrative, a good truth to remember that you're going to have mountaintop experiences in your life. But we spend most of our time where? In the valley. There's an old, wonderful gospel tune 
The God of the mountain is still God in the valley. Same God on the mountain, same God in the valley. And we live most of our lives where the disciples do, confronted with problems that we have no capacity to fix. They couldn't cast out the demon in their own power. We've got lots of problems in our life we can't fix. What is the solution? Faith and prayer. Same thing. We just have a different set of circumstances, but the mandate is the same. Let's review, and then I'll ask Tom to come, and we will go to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Number one, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ was planned from eternity past by God himself. It's a central event of human history. It's not an accident, it's an accomplishment. Number two, observe and obey God's word. Reject and discard any opinion contrary to God's word. Now, if you're going to know an opinion contrary to God's word, what does it presuppose? You know what God's word says. So you're not fooled by the lies of this planet, which means we need to be in God's word so we know what he has to say. Number three, and this is one, a big one. Faith believes that God, that Jesus is willing and able to do all things and also trusts him to do what is best at all times. And lastly, prayer is the road that faith travels into the presence of God, who is the source of all power. This was a lesson that was, uh, it's, it's from the ecstasy of the mountaintop to the agony of the valley, and the same Jesus is in both places. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and that we can count on. So read ahead next week, Lord willing. Uh, we'll see you then. I do love you. And now that you know... Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.